All right, if everybody wants to make their way to their seat here, we'll get started. We've got a good bit to cover today, so... So just to let you know what we're going to cover today, um, I did not, which was my fault, plan on not having Easter training hour Easter Sunday. So we're going to do two chapters today so that I can keep on schedule here and uh, finish the book next week. And then the final week, May 8th, will be uh, a recap, which is where I'll probably cover the most of that application stuff. Um, it's just been difficult to get through the material in the book and then to try to talk about some of the application points in detail that I've made. So we'll, we'll hit on some of that that last week in a recap. Um, so this week we'll cover chapters 10 and 11. We did have two weeks off, so hopefully people kept a chapter a week. But if not, that's okay. You'll be able to follow along. Chapter 11, I'm not going to cover a ton in because I feel like it was, uh, I felt like as I was reading it, we've actually covered a lot of it already. Okay, so chapter 11 is sort of a, a, a rehashing of a lot of the things we've talked about. I will cover a couple things and talk about some application points from it, though. So let me pray for us, and then if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Okay. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and uh, worship you, Lord. I pray that our worship would be glorifying to you, that it would be acceptable in your sight through the blood of Christ. Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged by the Word of God today, um, and the teaching of this lesson would be uh, honorable to you, Lord, and the preaching would also be honorable to you, Lord. We pray and ask that your, uh, your blessing on this time and the service, and uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Give you guys a chance to turn there. Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. A little bit of context here. This is uh, this little tiny snippet of scripture that we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to start with today uh, comes after a parable in which Christ talks about stewardship, and it's a rebuke, um, generally speaking, uh, against the Pharisees and their love of money. Uh, but we're going to read this together here, and we are going to talk about the principle that Jesus illustrates, rather than just the love of money. I think it's relevant to these two chapters. So it says, in, starting in verse 13 in Luke chapter 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Is an abomination in the sight of God. So what, what is the dichotomy here? There's one master we can serve, and the other master that we will necessarily despise because of that master we serve. That's the principle. This principle doesn't just apply to money. It applies to anything that we exalt to the position of God. 
We cannot serve God and ourselves. We cannot serve God and money. We cannot serve God in any other thing. And in, in anything that we fail to put God first, we will fail to worship God with the proper reverence that he deserves. Uh, though these verses are specifically referring to the love of money, they convey a spiritual principle. Double-mindedness is a house that is built on sand. If we serve anything else besides Christ, whom we serve by obedience to his revealed word, we are bound to fail in whatever endeavor we are pursuing. This is self-evident in the social justice movement, a movement built on envy, unequal weights and measures, bearing false witness, and racial prejudice and hatred. The movement can build nothing, but can only break down, uproot, and destroy the very things it states are its mission to build. And as we read this chapter, we need to ask ourselves, what master does social justice serve? God or the master of autonomous self? And what I mean by that is the master of our own opinions, of our own conjectures, of our own subjective view of the world. Okay, that's what we need to ask ourselves. All right, question, or, uh, chapter 10, starting over at page 127. I'm going to read long snippets of these chapters today because there, this is actually some relevant information for us to think about, uh, especially when we're talking about unequal weights and measures. We should keep that in the back of our mind as we talked about that a few weeks ago, that Christians are called to make judgments based on evidence. Christians are not called to make judgments based on feelings. Feelings are subjective and should be directed by truth and fact, okay? That doesn't mean that feelings are irrelevant. Notice I didn't say that, but feelings are subjective and must be directed by truth and fact. Remember Jeremiah chapter 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. Unless we build our feelings on the truth of the word of God and allow that to be the lens, like we've talked about before, to push us through the things in our life that are difficult, hard, the injustices that we see, we will be left to subjectivity, we will be double-minded, and we will fail to serve God and honor him in the way that he's called us to. Okay? So it says, one of the most common ways mental operating systems crash is when they process the world in only one way. An entrepreneur believes it is good to make money. In its proper place, this belief yields more hard work than hedonism, more generosity than greed, and more industriousness than impulsivity. That's good. In its proper place. Notice it's the love of money that the Bible talks about that is the roots of all kinds of evil, not money itself, not building wealth itself. If that were true, Abraham and many of the Old Testament patriarchs who were very rich in their day would have been idolaters for having that much, right? So we need to recognize that. In its place, in its honoring to God, it's a good thing. It says, at its best, the belief that making money is good would not crowd out God, family, friendship, honesty, rest, caring for the poor, and other good things in life. Before long, at least there's the potential here, our entrepreneur's belief becomes an idol that warps his mind. His mental space is overrun with thinking about how to build himself a Walter White bed of cash. He approaches others not as people, but as suckers to take by the ankles and shake until everything he wants from the relationship falls out of their pockets. This is actually a really good picture of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16. 
Remember the widow who put in all that she had because of the way that the Pharisees abused the system and how they took the money for themselves? On account of his epistemological tunnel vision, so his framework of seeing the world, okay, he can no longer truly see a breathtaking stretch of beach. It hits his retinas, but he can't really see it. He can't see the light show produced by the sun rays on the ocean ripples, which looks like 10 million tiny cameras flashing. He can't see glassy sheets of water gliding up and sizzling down the sand. He can't see seagulls surfing on the wind currents. All he sees is untrapped, untapped beachfront property that could, with some investment savvy, go for billions. Given his epistemology, his way of viewing things, how he, how he perceives the world, what he perceives as truth, he can see the world in only one color, green. Remember the, how we talked about the glasses, right? He can see the world in only one color, green. <clears throat> okay, flip over a page. He talks about unifying stories. He says we need grand unifying stories. We need cosmic dramas with heroes and villains to make sense of life's head-spinning perplexities. There is nothing wrong with our insuppressible need for grand stories. We are designed to live in big, meaningful narratives. The problem occurs when our grand stories aren't as grand as they seem. Instead of prying the world open to us, they cram it into a tiny box and lock us inside. They make God's technicolor world appear to us in monochrome. He hits on some things that are... Uh, can get really philosophical, like they're called architectonic structures. In other words, stories that we perceive truth through, like common stories that you can think of in our culture even, of the man saving the woman from the disaster. Those sorts of things are stories and narratives that ring true to us for particular reasons. It's because God has created in us certain innate properties as men and women that we are called to live out in the image of God. There's a reason that those things are popular. Now, they are obviously can be mutilated and turned into evil things by our culture, but there's a reason that those things are there. God calls us to those things. We are drawn, men are drawn to movies like Braveheart and Gladiator for particular reasons. Women are drawn to movies uh, like the Notebook, or whatever it is, I don't know, that was 20 years ago what was popular, Cinderella, those things, uh, those things of that nature. They're drawn to those things for particular reasons. Okay, so there are these narratives that God has called us to live in of justice, of truth, of what love is, and those sorts of things. Okay, there's nothing wrong with those things. Okay, it says the Bible is clear. This is seeing what's not there. The re there is real oppression in the world. This is how he makes his application. There is a big difference between believing this truth and downloading tribes thinking as our mental operating system. One helpful way to tell the difference is to honestly ask ourselves, how do we process evidence, evidence that oppression may not be the best explanation in this or that particular case? When oppression, a true insight into some things, becomes the way of seeing most or all things, then our story of the world ceases to be a grand story. Just as our tycoon couldn't really see a beach, he could only see dollars and cents, so we likewise lose our ability to see the world when we can only see oppression. Okay? Remember, it can't build anything. It can only tear down. 
It's not built on that. It's not built on the rock, which is Christ's word. It's built on sand because it's double-minded. It says, before long, this is on the next page, we can barely scroll through our Netflix suggestions without righteous indignation kicking in. Braveheart, a three-hour celebration of toxic masculinity. The Patriot, shameless American exceptionalism. Sleepless in Seattle, heteronormative propaganda. Lord of the Rings, Eurocentric racism. I've been waiting on that to come out, actually. I'm surprised that that hasn't hit yet. I'm also surprised that the same thing hasn't been said about the Chronicles of Narnia with re reference to the dark skin of the Kalormans and their association with evil. I am shocked that that has not come up yet. It will. Just give it time. <clears throat> it says Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, and American Sniper, which are military movies. Big budget Islamophobia. Aladdin, Mulan, Princess and the Frog, racial stereotyping, Captain America, more like Captain White Privilege. He says, I am hyperbolizing, but only slightly. I actually don't think he is at all. Um, in, in just the last week, the children's show Veggie Tales has been criticized as racist for having colored vegetables with different accents play villains. The playground game of dodgeball has since been denounced at the annual Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences as miseducative and a tool of oppression because it reinforces the five faces of oppression, which whatever those are. Behind such headlines, though laughable to some, there is serious insight into how our psyches work. We are talking about a well-documented phenomenon that psychologists call concept creep. Okay. Concept creep is particularly common in social justice. B, it assumes that questioning, this is really important, it assumes that questioning sexism, racism, or any other evil-ism as the best explanation is to side with the oppressors against the oppressed. You can't ask questions. In other words, whenever you guys come into contact with this, it is useless for you to try to be empathetic. Because as soon as you question anything that they believe in that way, okay, as soon as you offer something contrary to the evidence of what they feel, then you are immediately judging them and you are immediately seen as a threat to their personhood because their ide entire identity is tied up in this subjective feeling or thought or ideological worldview of oppression. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, you can't please them. Notice how they fight within themselves. There's a huge fight right now over transgender um, men who, who say that they're women and actual feminists. Because actual feminists recognize that this is a man proclaiming to be a woman. Who's right according to their worldview? How do you determine that? This is why the left eats itself in that way. Okay, It, it doesn't have any foundation to build on. This is what double-mindedness and sand lead to is constantly shifting principles. Okay, Constantly shifting principles. All right, so I was on to say, actually fixing problems requires more than one-dimensional diagnoses. 
asking unpopular questions, and openly gathering and assessing the facts is one of the most loving things that we can do for our oppressed brothers and sisters. Contrary to popular opinion, questioning whether and to what extent sexism, racism, or any other anti-biblicalism is the real problem is siding with the oppressed. So notice, questioning that, according to Social Justice B, how he defines it in this book, questioning the, the, the uh, outlook of a particular person as to whether or not they are actually experiencing sexism, racism, or any other bigotry, questioning them, according to Social Justice B, is siding with the oppressor. But questioning them, according to biblical principle, is actually loving and siding with the oppressed. Do you see the difference? Okay, so we must question them, but we question them according to God's word. What is the evidence? What are the facts of the situation? Is, it a is there a possibility that you have a chip on your shoulder because of your experiences? Is there a possibility that you do not live in light of God's word in that way? Again, we don't have to be belligerent in that way, but we are free as Christians to ask questions. And if you bear the brunt of ridicule for that, then glory be to God, right? Glory be to God, according to Matthew chapter 5, that we are to rejoice when we are ridiculed for his name's sake. Okay? Page 132. He goes through a list here. Um, because what he's trying to, and this is 132 through 134, what he's trying to do is to show you that those who promote the uh, unbiblical view of justice that is encapsulated in his term, un social justice B, actually lose everything because their principles are built on shifting sand. They actually lose it all. They can't accomplish or truly build they actually undercut, destroy, and undermine because their principles are not based on the foundation of truth and reality, which is God's word. He says, should we care about women exploited by the abortion industry? In 1973, seven powerful men rendered the Roe versus Wade decision, impacting millions. While hailed as a landmark decision for the liberation of women, 64% of women who seek abortions said they felt pressured by others to have them. Over half thought abortion was morally wrong. Less than 1% said they felt better about themselves. 77.9% felt guilt, and 59.5% felt part of me died. He goes on in another paragraph. Should we care about the voiceless babies terminated by the abortion industry? According to the World Health Organization, abortion was the leading cause of death in the world in 2018, tallying 42 million victims. 42 million in a year. That is 42 million human beings who fell victim to suction tubes, curette blades, and the mayo scissors of the abortion industry. That is 80 image bearers terminated in the last minute that you have been reading more than one per second. In places such as Iceland, the abortion rate for children undiagnosed with Down syndrome approaches 100%. Children diagnosed, I should say. In the United States, 90% of preborn humans diagnosed with Downs are terminated. 90%. Um, it's just hideous. 
Should we care about our children who have endured split homes? This is another question, because remember, social justice is against quote-unquote heteronormative thinking. In other words, a man and a woman being together in typical marriage. They are against this. It's plainly uh, obvious. If you just listen to any feminist uh, who adheres to typical feminist principles, if you listen to any of the Black Lives Matter propaganda that they put out that they've since removed from their website but still promote on a smaller scale, um, it says, should we care about children who have endured split homes? There are mountains of research documenting the advantages of being raised by two parents. That's because God blesses those things he's made normal in our reality. It says, mom and dad sticking together for all their imperfections corresponds with higher levels of academic and career success for their children, along with lower rates of criminality and mental disorder to achieve equality should diversity committees work to dismantle two-parent privileges and ensure that candidates from broken homes are given more seats at the table? How often does what now brands itself social justice champion the cause of strong and intact families as a justice issue? The answer to that question is basically never. It just, I'm sorry, this bothers me so much reading this stuff. Should we care about the victims of exploited, of the exploitive pornography industry? Pornography is a $97 billion industry. In 2018, more than 5.5 billion hours of pornography were consumed on a single site with 33.5 billion visits. Let me, let me tell you, if you are addicted to this, you need to repent and do everything that you possibly can. Get rid of your computers, your smartphones, whatever it takes to move yourself away from this. It is completely and utterly destructive. <clears throat> you are contributing to the sexual trafficking industry every time you click on it. You are contributing to the rape and exploitation of young women every time you click on one of those sites. Repent. Should we care about the millions of Christians imprisoned or executed around the globe? The social justice bee narrative often uses a broad brush to paint Christians as the oppressors Remember, Western culture is oppressive by its nature, and they associate that with Christianity in the whole. The driving force behind, it is the driving force behind the, the theocracy, racism, Islamophobia, bigotry, exploitation, and sexism in the world. Too many with tribe's mindset, it, too many with the tribe's mindset, it is obvious which side of the oppressor-oppressed equation Christians fall on. Yet, according to Newsweek in 2018, Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than at any time in history. This is Newsweek, a liberal magazine. This includes being targeted, imprisoned, beaten, raped, hung, crucified, and bombed for claiming Jesus as Lord. We just don't experience that here because we're living off the uh, leftovers of Christian capital from the founders of our nation. <clears throat> we'll be there, but we're not there yet, unless we repent and... There is a great revival in this country. Should we care about the desperately oppressed victims of the far-left systems like communism and socialism? This is, what every, uh, this is what people in our country are promoting. Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, people in our government are promoting these things. Okay? What, what, what has happened, though? What's the evidence 
of socialism and communism. What did it produce? According to the international bestseller, The Black Book of Communism, the quest to achieve economic equality between the rich and poor through the communist and socialist policies has resulted in over 100 million casualties in the 20th century alone. Because power corrupts. Power corrupts. Nevertheless, several studies show that support for socialism is trending high in the United States, particularly among younger generations. Okay. Sorry, that's just a hard section to read when you read things like that. So page 135, it says this, There is one final thing that tribes thinking leaves outside its field of vision. It is the main thing, the gospel. Sadly, every one of my friends, colleagues, and students who has continued down the road of social justice B has ended up in the same place, a place where they no longer evangelize. They no longer tell people the truth about how supremely holy and satisfying God is. There is no talk of the scandalous reality of sin in every human heart or the sweet redemption that comes through only only through the crucifixion and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. They offer no loving cause to repent of sin and self-righteousness to trust completely in the righteousness of Christ. It's sad to watch the best news in the universe fade from view in the fog of rhetoric about pay gaps, cisto-heteropatriarchal privilege, and the evils of capitalism. It's sad to watch the cultural revolution eclipse the Great Commission. That's because the goal is not the honor of Christ. The goal of social justice is to destroy. It cannot build anything. It is only meant to view, and if you can only view the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed, then you will have a never-ending story of things which you must fight, never-ending battles of which you must uproot. Because as soon as one person becomes the now exalted uh, portrayer of ideas, then immediately they're going to be looked at by five others as the oppressor. Because power is the enemy, not sin. The problem is, is that God has actually created hierarchical structures in society. He has created us to live in submission to those. And he has called just as much account to the person who is to submit to those as he has to the person who is to lead in those. In other words, the government is just as accountable as the people who are uh, consenting to be governed. The husband is just as accountable as the wife is. The children are just as accountable as the parents are. They have different responsibilities, but all are held under God's law and God's word, the slave and the master. That's why there are those household codes in Ephesians chapter 6 and in in Colossians chapter 3, I believe. That's why they're there. They're there for instructions in those things. Neil's story. Uh, This is Neil Shinvey. He's a fairly well-known person within evangelical circles as far as social justice goes. I'm going to read just a little bit of what he says, not the whole story. It's on page 137. This framework, the framework of oppressor versus oppressed, okay? It's on page 137. Has devastating effects on our theology. You cannot hold it separate. 
it is a worldview. It is a heart matter. It is something that will cause you to fail to serve God. That's why I read that passage from Luke at the beginning. First, a Christian's primary identity is not in their race, class, or gender. It is in their union with Christ. To see our brothers and sisters as oppressors solely because of their demographic group is to re-erect the dividing wall of hostility that Christ tore down. Second, while unbiblical values oppress, God's values are ultimately liberating. God is our creator and his design for us frees us. We dare not haphazardly dismantle all of society's dominant values. Many Christians are I'm going to skip down. Many Christians are unconsciously adopting a comprehensive framework that inevitably unravels basic Christian doctrines. Not tertiary matters, basic Christian doctrines. <clears throat> How can you be committed to a biblical view of gender or sexuality if you gender and heteronormative if gender and if you view, I'm sorry, gender and heteronormativity as oppressive social constructs. In other words, you cannot. How can you be committed to the authority of the Bible when it claims that Christianity is true and all other religions are false? Ask yourself in the midst of this, do you feel bad about saying that to someone else? If you feel bad about saying that to someone else, then you've imbibed some of this. There are times when I struggle with that. When is the appropriate time to say this? When is the appropriate time to say that? We all struggle with that sort of fear of man. Okay, But ask yourself, do you fear saying that to someone? Why? When is it appropriate to speak up? When is it not? Is there ever a time when it's not? We should always be asking ourselves these questions. <clears throat> How can you be committed to, quote, centering voices of color while rejecting liberation theology? How, these are our serious issues. Don't just coast along with the cultural zeitgeist. Test all things. Think critically and biblically. All right. Chapter 11. Any questions so far? We're going to go on to chapter 11 here. There's not quite as much that we need to cover in this one. It's the suffering question. I'm going to try to get to the last story because I feel like it's, it's, it's pretty important for us to think about it. It says, <clears throat> we're talking about, does our vision of social justice turn, quote, lived experience of hurting people into more pain? The real, it says, this realization brings us to the second aspect of tribe's thinking. It encourages us to make our own lived experiences authoritative, a view known as standpoint epistemology. We've talked about this before. Okay, That's why I'm not going to spend a ton of time in this chapter. It says, when applied to questions of justice, this means that anyone who claims that theocrats, racists, Islamophobes, bigots, exploiters, or sexists have hurt them must not merely be heard, but taken authoritatively. You hear the difference there? It's not that we can't listen to somebody. It's that we, God does not call us to take everything that they feel and say as authoritative. There's a difference there. You can listen to someone, but it is not your job to express empathy in agreement with them as though they were authority uh, as though they had or possessed the authority of God's word or was God himself. 
which is basically what we've made ourselves in this country, okay? And in social justice as a whole. We make ourselves miniature gods. Yes? Okay, so uh, going back one page, on page 137, this helps us talk about standpoint. How can you celebrate the deep truth in the confessions of the Reformation if they are hopelessly Eurocentric? What, they mean by, what he means by Eurocentric or what social justice P B proponents mean by Eurocentric is that they, these truths were held by white privileged males. And so therefore, Eurocentric means skin color, language, oppression, plunder, so all of those things are tied up into that. And what they, how they would respond to that from a social justice B perspective is that the only way to have the whole view is to actually take theology from black and brown voices as well. So that would be their perspective of what it means to be Eurocentric. And that's why they would reject uh, theological doctrines that grew out of the Reformation. It's just entirely based on skin color. It's not based on anything valuable. It's, it comes from the uh, postmodern view of words. So words have meaning in the eye of the beholder versus words actually having meaning and purpose and being standardized. Definitions become fluid. Therefore, everything else becomes fluid. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you look at European society as a whole, by saying that the Reformation theology should be upheld, so I would say that, for instance, the, the, the confessions of, the West, of, of Westminster and the London Baptist Confession are valuable documents that should be adhered to by churches. At the same time, there were things that Europeans did that were untenable with Scripture, okay? Um, there are also... And, and in the same way, there are things that Africans did and everything. So we want to always reject and recognize and be truthful about all the facts regarding a particular situation, right? Um, so we would never just want to uphold one, uh, one time period uh, of people uh, above all else as though they had no imperfections, but we can uphold what one time period produced insofar as it accords with Scripture, is that a way to say what you were saying? Okay. Does that make sense? So we would never want to deny that there have been atrocities committed by Americans. Okay? We've done a lot of wrong things in this country. I mean, we do it every day in the abortion mills. There's a lot of stains on our hands, but we've also done very good things. Um, our form of government, insofar as it's ever depended upon God, is representative of a good form of government. The reason we haven't totally imploded yet is because of checks and balances. But we're on our way. We're on our way. So, okay, so standpoint epistemology. It says, <clears throat> lived experience must in turn, remember, we cannot take them authoritatively. We can listen, 
but we must test what they say. Even the most hurting person in the worst experience that you've ever heard of in your life, who is just completely destroyed, you cannot take them as authoritative. You cannot fail in putting God's word before their feelings. And I'm going to show you this last story in this chapter, I think, is illustrative of that, okay? This last story in this chapter is illustrative of that. So hear, hear that. That's a hard thing for us to accept, right? Weep with those who weep. In our culture right now, especially in evangelicalism, you're supposed to lament with everybody who laments. And by what, what they mean by that, not that lament is a bad thing. There's a book called Lamentations. It's not what I'm saying. But, but what they mean by that is that you're supposed to empathize to the point of agreement with every lived experience that that person has had. And that is not biblical. That is not biblical. God calls us to always put his word in front of our feelings and the feelings of everyone that we interact with. That doesn't mean we can't be compassionate. That doesn't mean we can't listen. But it does mean we need to ask questions to help them see light and not continue to live in darkness if that's what they're doing. That's how you counsel people. A counselor that offers you nothing but agreement, empathy, in the way that our culture and broad evangelicalism offers you, offers you nothing. If they can't point you to the word of God, they offer you nothing. If you as a counselor, whoever that might be, cannot, don't feel like you can offer the word of God to the most hurting person that you've ever met in your life, then you're in sin. Okay, God's word is authoritative in our life. God's word is authoritative in our life. He t- it goes on on page 143, and then I'm going to skip to the last story. Okay, He goes on on page 143, and he says, I've seen it happen, and it's heartbreaking. He's talking about people who are affected by this kind of standpoint epistemology. A 21-year-old is reasonably happily, reasonably happy, socially connected, creative, curious, and kind. Her professors fill her head with tribes thinking, deconstructing Shakespeare as patriarchal propaganda. Before long, every male in her life becomes a conviving, power-hungry Iago plotting her demise. Her indoctrinators perhaps believed they were turning a soft yes girl into a fearless warrior woman to join their just cause. I do not see a fearless warrior woman. I see a fear-wracked, perpetually triggered, cynical, seething, paranoid, isolated person with the light snuffed out of her beautiful eyes. It's a really, really poignant few sentences there. That is the inevitable direction of accepting social justice as it's portrayed in our culture. All right, Bella's story, page 149. This is what I said earlier that I wanted you to think about. This is a pretty terrible story if you go and read it. It's on page 148 and 149 in the book. Uh, Bella was raised in a Christian home. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the first two paragraphs and then read the last few, okay? She was raised in a Christian home, rejected God when she went to college, okay? Um, Became involved in sexual promiscuity, then joined an anti- uh, sex trafficking organization was broken 
by all the, uh, the heartache that she saw and eventually came to Christ. She decided to enroll in Biola University, and this is what happened. Okay, this is what happened. I transferred to Biola University to pursue God. I had no idea of the pain that awaited me in California. A week after moving, I ventured off campus to go dancing in L.A. with my new roommates. A group of young men drugged me and gang-raped me until 5 in the morning. When I woke up, there was no denying the black bruises covering my body or the flashbacks of the cruel violence. I told my roommate, who sobbed with me, and went with me to the police station. As we drove to the station, I expected to feel hopeless, dirtied, and lost. Instead, I felt perfect peace. My father was holding me in his arms, and I could feel it. I played in Christ alone, singing and worshiping God with deep joy. I can't put into words how deeply I understood his love that day. Though I could never earn his love, he pours it into my heart. I am his precious, beloved daughter. No evil could ever change that. Even through horrible flashbacks and anxiety attacks, I stand firm in this confidence. The final chapter of my story is already written and waits for me. It ends with me running into the Father's open arms. No power of hell or scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. I have a new heart, one that sees every human as a precious creation of God's love. I do not hate anyone, not even my rapists. I know those men are responsible for their wrongs, but I also know that God longs for their hearts as recklessly as he longed for mine. Jesus paid my full debt on the cross, and anyone who turns to Jesus has theirs paid too. I still, I still care deeply about justice, victims of sexual, justice for victims of sexual violence, now more than ever. However, I no longer use hatred and fear as fuel for revenge. Instead, I draw on God's perfect love for restoration. Fear cannot drive out fear, nor hate drive out hate. Only love can do that. And God's love can and will heal the pains of this world a thousand times over, just as it healed mine. <clears throat> So in order to bring healing on a given situation, we are required in every circumstance, even the most evil ones, to forgive those who have hurt us and to help others who have been hurt to forgive those who have hurt them. Remember, God forgives us in Christ, though every Christian is responsible for the sufferings of Jesus on the cross himself. It was our deserved penalty that he bore on our behalf. And if those who hurt you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, Jesus will forgive them despite your grudge and your bitterness. And your, under, and your judgment and your bitterness cannot undo the love of God. Cannot undo the love of God. Any questions? All right, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and um, worship you, God. I pray that we would think heavily on these things, God, that you would give us courage uh, both to listen and to be compassionate with your word, uh, using it, God, as you would have us to use it, calling people to repentance, calling people to more faithfulness, God, helping people heal, helping people forgive. In whatever way, Lord, uh, that we can. Lord, give us the courage to speak to one another in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.